Welcome to the Crossroads Podcast. I'm John Burke, America's Editor for Information News. Joining me on today's program is Brent Burnett, co-head of Real Assets for Hamilton Lane, and Jonathan Carmody, editor of our Latin America team. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks, John. Nice to be here with you today. Always a pleasure, JB. So Hamilton Lane is a global private markets investment management firm with $667 billion in assets under management and advisement. On the infrastructure side, they work with clients on a discretionary basis and also do advisory work with pension funds on real assets allocations. So 2020, for obvious reasons, saw a big drop off from third party fundraisers from 2019 and 2018 in terms of infrastructure funds. Overall, though, there was over $200 billion or so raised during that three-year period, which saw two global flagship funds, Brookfield Infrastructure Partners 4 and Global Infrastructure Partners 4, exceed the $20 billion threshold. Third-party managers also sought to whet the appetite of LPs eager to increase allocations to infrastructure in other ways, such as infrastructure credit platforms, geographic-specific vehicles, and energy transition funds. Brent joins us today to reflect on the fund landscape and what the rest of 2021 might look like. Brent, before we get into specifics, it seems like there's a, a mandate to get a large infrastructure bill passed by Independence Day. I'd like to get your general view on what the Biden infrastructure plan looks like and what specific sectors it will impact. Uh, yeah, sure, John. It's a good question. We're, we're, we're fielding this question frequently from clients as well. Um, as you know, there appears to be a bipartisan support for getting something done. I think you know, ultimately what the bill will look like may be, may be pretty different from what's been proposed. But if you, just, if you just take the plan as proposed, I think there are some sectors within infrastructure that are likely to benefit from it. And there are others that I think it will be, you know, either neutral to even slightly negative. And so if you kind of look across the sectors that have specific uh, spending allocations that are allocated to them, you know, transportation and water, uh, those have been subsectors within infrastructure, at least here in North America, that have been pretty small targets for private infrastructure funds. Uh, there have been some PPPs done in that space, but they, they have been relatively few. And, and generally, where the private capital has benefited has been from uh, projects where there's a lack of federal spending uh, available to fund those projects. So if we see the federal government come in in scale into some of these sectors like transportation, like water, I think there is some risk to crowding out some of the limited opportunities that have been available to private capital that have primarily worked through state and local governments on those PPPs. So I think transportation and water, depending on how that spending uh, plan is structured, could be neutral to slightly negative for private capital. Um, on the sectors that I think are, are potentially positioned to benefit from it, uh, data telecom, specifically rural broadband, uh, electricity in terms of electric vehicles, transmission, distribution, you know, those are sectors that have sizable allocations for spending. They've been good sectors for private capital. Um, I think it's unlikely that the federal government takes uh, a directly competitive role with private capital in those sectors and will more likely look to, you know, either backstop uh, uh, loans or, or provide incentives to consumers to select their provider. And I think that approach will, uh, on balance, be, be potentially very positive for private infrastructure capital. Um, the last sector on the social infrastructure side, this has been a small target for uh, infrastructure investors in the U.S. as well. 
much larger target in Europe. I think it will depend on the form that the federal government takes in terms of how it approaches this. If they take a model that's similar to what we've seen in European countries where consumers have some choice about which care facilities they choose and the level of service while the government essentially backstops the bill while setting service standards, I think if they take that model, that could be positive for private capital. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're all watching it intently to see how it comes out. And uh, but if you take it as it's laid out today, I think there are going to be some winners and losers that are created from it. Yeah. And I think ostensibly, it seems like the Republicans want a scaled down version of the bill, which sort of almost like bypasses what Biden was targeting in terms of clean energy initiatives and actually settling around transportation as being the, the core focus of what they'd like to see in a scaled down version. You have two different agendas and they're going to have to meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And I think, you know, at least some of the early moves that the Biden administration has moved on, has, has made on the renewable sector ha have been a positive in terms of um, uh, looking to speed permitting for offshore wind, federally backstopping some of those loans and offshore wind projects, um, potentially providing some more permanent uh, uh, subsidies to, to wind and solar um, or tax credit. So I, I do think that there is some grounds for, for some, some grounds for compromise there. But as you note, the one sector that I think has benefited most from some federal uh, intervention here has been on the renewable side. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that gets impacted. Excellent. Thanks for that. What I alluded to earlier, again, about these different vehicles that we and others have been writing about over the past couple of years, LPs have a lot of choices today. <laughs> in terms of increasing their real assets or infrastructure allocation. And then this obviously goes beyond infrastructure into other forms like real estate, for instance. Just from your experience, what type of funds do you see are making an impact and why are they making an impact? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things happening. And, and you know, as you know, the, this is an asset class that has, that has grown almost exponentially over the last 10 years. Um, you know, our, our data suggests that uh, uh, 10 years ago, it was um, roughly 1% of a $500 billion private markets uh, asset class. Today, it's roughly 8% of a $6.5 trillion private markets asset class. So the growth in, in infrastructure allocations has really been significant over, over the last 10 years. Um, you know, and that said, I think there's sort of a natural evolution of this asset class in that we're seeing a lot more choices offered to LPs in terms of how they approach their infrastructure portfolio construction. So um, as, as you noted, the mega funds have moved up in size, obviously over the last few years, they had very strong fundraises in 2019. That I think is partially why you saw lower activity in 2020 is because a lot of those mega funds had, had, had come to market in 2018 and 2019 and weren't really in the market in, 29, in 2020. Um, but at the same time, I think where we're seeing some growth in new opportunities has been in sector-specific funds that are around the data and telecom space that are attracting a lot of institutional capital. We're also seeing a growth in the number of offerings in the small to mid-market infrastructure space. So, um, you know, and this is, this is actually from information's data. If you look at where the number of transactions uh, that, that occurred in 2020 about 75% of the number of transactions were below 500 million of enterprise value. 
And so you think about the fundraising as being strongest in that larger end of the market, but the liquidity of the infrastructure assets is actually much greater on that smaller end of the market. And so we've seen more small to mid-sized focus funds targeting, you know, anywhere from 500 million to a billion and a half dollars of capital be launched this year in, in response to what is, is a, a kind of a dearth of capital availability for those small to mid-sized deals. Great, interesting uh, points there. Moving on to ESG, it remains a very important buzzword in investing in general. But let's talk about it at the base level from the, the view of the pension funds. What, what are you seeing today in terms of how ESG is affecting investment strategy as it pertains to real assets? Yeah, I think, you know, as you know, this is a critical uh, piece to institutional investing today. And it's not just enough to have a policy. Um, uh, groups that are coming to market to raise capital, they need to have a, a, a very robust ESG policy, but they have to be able to look through that to, to show uh, institutions how they're measuring and monitoring specific ESG criteria within their portfolios. Um, and so I think we're sort of moving beyond the uh, uh, implementing ESG at a screening phase and and moving toward being able to monitor e specific ESG criteria within portfolios. And that's what institutions are starting to expect now. Um, I think that, you know, the easiest one to focus on is the environmental piece because it's a little bit more quantifiable. Um, but I, I think institutions are really trying to take a comprehensive view of of the environmental, the social, and the governance aspects of those policies, uh, such that you know even an upstream energy strategy, for example, that may rank negatively on the environmental side, they still need to be able to show that they are uh, mitigating the environmental effects to the extent that they can, and they have a robust policy with respect to social and governance issues if they want to have any chance of of raising capital in today's markets, and that's. That's that's very true for infrastructure funds as well that have historically been heavy on the midstream infrastructure side. Uh, it's just it's critical to fundraising today, and it's no longer a nice to have. It's a must have uh, for the institutional market. I think early on when we were covering this from the perspective of the investor or the LP, there was always a, a, a question about what was governing their ESG. You know, was was there a metric, metrics like Gresby? So I'm kind of wondering. You know what the evolution's been there. Has there been a, a more common metric adopted? Have more people opted into Gresby as as a metric? Yeah, we're we're seeing more more institutions adopt Gresby. Most more so in Europe, John, than what we've seen in North America. It's it's really it's really become uh, in many ways a standard. And, and in fact, when we're, when we're uh, uh, looking at new opportunities or even pursuing new business in certain European markets, it's a requirement to have either Gresby or some other reporting capability on, on the ESG function. So I think, you know, Gresby has kind of emerged as the standard in, in Europe. Um, I, I think we're starting to see it a little bit more in North America, but it's not, it, it, it is not to date a requirement like we see in other markets. Um, there, there are some other providers out there as well that are, are trying to solve this issue. And fundamentally, what these service providers are about is, is being able to uh, quantify and monitor uh, the, the, the ESG compliance, the ESG impact of the underlying assets in a portfolio. So 
you know, this is what I mean when, when I say we're trying to move from incorporating ESG into a diligence approach uh, from uh, and, and, and taking a step further in integrating ESG into monitoring and services like Gresby help to do that. Are there any newer metrics that USLPs are looking at right now? Or is it more the sense them getting used to Gresby? Yeah, I think I, I think you know Gresby's one one provider. Um, I there I, I think institutions in North America are are starting to look for uh, what the specific metrics uh, should be in their ESG policies that they can measure and monitor. Um, I think first they're trying to define what those metrics are and what the standards are that they will hold their underlying GPs to. And, and then they will look to identify, you know, what, what provider it is that they will require to monitor those. Um, so, you know, I think Gresby is, is sort of out in front given its footprint in Europe. Uh, but, but, but I can't say that that's been uh, the, you know, the only service or the only way that groups in North America have looked at it. So moving to just some of these energy centric funds that are out there and have raised a, a ton of capital over the last decade. Have you seen ESG sort of impact LPs' relationships with these fund managers, and and how how has it changed? How has it forced them to change their approach? What have you seen uh, from the GPs in in these kind of relationships that have focused on energy for so long, and now are being forced to adopt somewhat by ESG standards or LPs' different approaches to this? It, yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting and and natural evolution to to where their strategies have been in the past. And I think the groups that are have been poised to, to, to really benefit from this, and, and I say benefit, but I, what I should say is, is those groups that can more easily pivot to these energy transition strategies have been the more diversified energy-focused funds. So, you know, if you, if you were a pure upstream production-oriented fund, it it's very difficult to, I, I think, transition into an energy energy transition type strategy. But some of the more diversified energy managers, I think, have been successful at, at transitioning uh, their approach to focus more on the energy transition theme. Um, and, and I think this is driven by a couple of things, John. It's not just ESG, uh, although that is a big driver here. But one of the very practical drivers is that institutions have been very underwhelmed by the returns that they've experienced in their historical upstream strategies. So they've seen a lot of volatility there. They've seen limited distributions coming back now for nearly 10 years from those strategies. And in addition to that, you have a new uh, ESG policy, which is really driven by the, the desire to fully quantify all of the risks that are inherent in a strategy. And I, I, so I think you take the combination of the, the poor returns, the lower distribution, plus an additional risk overlay through an ESG policy, and it's natural that institutions are migrating away from a more uh, volatile upstream type approach. And so this has created a market for these energy transition funds that are, are, are really looking to you know, provide bridge capital to these types of companies that are helping with this electrification trend in North America and globally. And we think it's a pretty interesting space because, you know, many of these companies uh, in the energy transition space, they're not quite ready for infrastructure capital in the sense that they may have some technology risk, they may have some business model risk, 
They may need to scale their manufacturing capability. They may need to diversify their customer mix. But uh, once they they sort of get through that growth phase and really start to, to function as an infrastructure provider, there's a lot of ready capital uh, that will that will be available to come in and take out those positions. So we, we, we think it's a pretty interesting place to play. And we think that, um, you know, those groups that are best positioned to play there are the ones that have historically had more diversified energy strategies. Well, along those lines of alternatives, you know, we've seen some other funds start to rise up, such as aquaculture for one. And then obviously, as I alluded to earlier, you've seen specializations start to take place in certain efforts, what KKR is doing in, in Asia. But can you just, from your view, uh, tell us a little bit more about what asset classes are starting to gain popularity? Yeah, and and, and I think a, a lot of this, uh, John, goes back to my earlier comments in terms of being kind of a natural evolution of, of the infrastructure market and, and by extension, the capital raising markets and real assets. And that is, as as the capital um, as the capital has increased, uh, that's targeted toward more traditional infrastructure. Uh, there's been kind of an expansion of the definition of what infrastructure is. And, you know, 10 years ago when there were not many players in the in the space, I think it was easier to find kind of plain vanilla infrastructure that could meet the, the returns that groups are targeting. Today, that's more difficult because it's it's become more competitive, especially on the larger end of the market. And so, you know, you see you, you see groups kind of transitioning into other uh subsectors that are infrastructure-like, but may not meet a traditional definition of infrastructure. You know, aquaculture could, could be considered one of those um, in, in the sense that, you know, depending on the company, you can have high barriers to entry, you can have high CapEx requirements, you can have long-term offtake contracts. And so groups are starting to look for companies that are infrastructure-like, but that may not meet a traditional definition of infrastructure. So I think that spurred some of the interest. The other, I think, is there's been a growth. And as I mentioned, the sector-specific funds, I think some of the the thematic uh, uh, based investing approach that groups have taken have allowed them to to make sector bets in data and telecom, uh, renewable infrastructure, uh, traditional midstream energy infrastructure was sort of your single subsector dedication in the past, but but the the number of new entrants that's come into the space with specializations in data and telecom and renewable energy has really grown. And I think the other place that we're seeing more, um, as I mentioned on the small to mid cap side, so we're seeing groups come in with a, a strategy targeted towards smaller assets with uh, uh, either a, a platform build out strategy small asset aggregation strategy. They're looking to take advantage of the strength of the capital raising on the larger end by assembling positions that can easily be sold into that market. Um, and then lastly, as you know, we're seeing more on the emerging market side. And I think, again, this is sort of a natural evolution of the return compression that we've seen in the larger end of the infrastructure space in more developed markets like North America and Western Europe. Uh, uh, groups are migrating toward more growth economies in order to meet uh, the in order to, to to try and target the returns that they want to target for those strategies. So those are those are kind of the areas that we see are newer that are starting to attract capital. And and again, I think a lot of this is driven by by a natural evolution in the growth of the infrastructure market. Before we get to emerging markets, I we should note that you know in, in a deal that was announced only about ten hours ago. 
KKR uh, did announce that they had uh, made an offer to acquire John Lang in concert with Equitext, which is, you know, another trend we've been following over the last two years that you can mar in investment with greenfield development as well, which we've seen constantly through deals like CDBQ acquiring plenary and today's deal with KKR and, and John Lang. So it's going to be interesting to see the growth of those businesses now under uh, a deeper, well-pocketed owners. Yeah, I, I think that is interesting, uh, John. And just just one comment on that: that this is another area where we think you know infrastructure investors um, are are finding some some arbitrage opportunities in terms of what stabilized assets sell for uh, versus what they can develop or build new assets for. And so, you know, if you think about stabilized renewables in North America, for example, that's a very competitive space. Um, once they once they are contracted under long term PPAs with utilities, the cost of capital that comes into those is very low. But there's still an opportunity to uh, develop and construct um, uh, renewable assets in North America at, at a yield that represents a pretty significant spread to where those stabilized assets trade. So, you know, similar to the deals you've mentioned, we've seen more interest in companies that have some stabilized operating portfolio, but also have a big backlog of, of uh, construction-ready development opportunities because that's how groups can drive incremental returns in competitive sectors. Switching gears over to emerging markets, Jonathan Carmody has had uh, extensive experience over the last couple of years covering the fund formation in uh, Mexico, Colombia, to name a few. Yeah, thanks, JB. Hi, Brent. You know, we've been curious about the the kinds of investors that have started to look more and more at Latin America. Macquarie, for example, had a Mexican fund for a long time. It was their first Latin American vehicle actually raised inside of Mexico from local pension funds. We have seen other investors like um, like Aberdeen raising Andean specific funds, regional specific funds. How do you see the appetite for emerging market risk, not just in Latin America, but in places like Africa and Asia as well? Yeah, I think the the, the appetite is there. I think it's growing off of a relatively small base, and, and that's really driven by the return compression, I think, that we've seen in developed markets. Um, and, and at the same time, is is you know, as you well know, that there's a balance between uh, trying to achieve incrementally higher return and trying to quantify the the risk that you take in those in those developed or in those developing markets. And Latin America is a good example of that. There have been groups that have historically been active in Latin America. Uh, some of those that you mentioned, um, uh, uh, Brookfield's done a number of things in Latin America, GIP as well. Uh, there are certain constructs of the power markets there that are actually from from a regulatory perspective. Uh, in some ways better than what you find in in developed markets and that's that's one of the sectors on the power side that we've seen groups uh, uh commit capital to in in Latin America uh that said there's been there there has been a lot of um geopolitical risk and changes in some of those Latin American countries most recently you know in Mexico you've seen um uh, a kind of a retrade on some of the power contracts there uh, trying to make some of the renewable generation bear its cost of uh, the inefficiencies that it creates for the grid operators. That has sort of uh, funneled down to traditional generation as well in the Mexican market. So um, what, you know, you have to go into these markets understanding that that 
that regulatory construct can change at any time. Chile has historically been a very, um, uh, I, I think, comfortable market for institutional investors to transact in. I wouldn't call it developing by any means. It's an OECD country, but even even a country as stable as Chile, we're watching now intently to see how this new constitution may come out and how that may impact private asset owners in what has historically been the most stable jurisdiction for foreign investment in Latin America. So I think it, it is on the radar for instance. I think they know that in developing countries, especially the need for infrastructure spend and the need for infrastructure assets is much greater. The competition is lower. There's the prospect for better returns in those markets without taking incrementally higher credit risk. But there is some geopolitical risk that, that investors have to be aware of. And so, although I think it's growing in interest, I think it's still going to remain, uh, you know, call it a kind of 10 to 15 percentage target for investors relative to North America and Western Europe, which are going to be, you know, 60 and, and 40 percent respectively of their target infrastructure allocations. That's a very interesting point. And when it comes to the political risk, which obviously is, is relatively inherent in places like Latin America, how do you at Hamilton Lane assess that risk? What kind of techniques and, and what kind of resources do you have for, for gauging that beyond just the, the press or ratings agencies? Yeah, we have we have local market um, expertise in those markets. You know, Hamilton Lane is a global firm. We have presence, obviously, in in uh, North America, Europe, Latin America, Asia. Uh, so it's very helpful to have local market resources that can help us to assess those risks. And I think you know, to 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 your point on some of these groups that have been active down there, um, having having a track record and local market presence in those in those Latin American economies or Asian economies or African economies is really important. I think it's it would be very difficult for us and for most um, I, I think institutional investors to invest with a group that is just looking to to kind of parachute into those markets and figure them out. Um, so when we invest it selectively in those developing markets, we do it with uh, 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 with the benefit of having a local presence ourselves or investing through a partner that has a team on the ground in those markets that has a long history of operating. I think the other way you kind of mitigate that risk is um, your contract counterparties really matter. So um, your ability to secure contracts that are U.S. dollar denominated and mitigate some of your currency risk, uh, the, the, the pass-through of those contract structures to holding companies that have a, a A-rated credit or above is a way to mitigate some of that geopolitical risk. So I think there's ways to, to mitigate that through both local partnerships, uh, but also the way you structure the agreements for assets in those markets and trying to, to, to mitigate both some of the currency risk, but also the counterparty risk. That's a very interesting point, especially regarding the real assets themselves. When you discuss kind of fund of funds strategies, is there much appetite among those kind of investors to actually invest in Latin American based vehicles or, or vehicles based out of Asia or Africa? who might be kind of GPs operating from the region directly. How, how do you view those kind of investors, those local investors, compared to, say, a BlackRock or a Brookfield? Yeah, I, I think those those locally based investors have 
you know, have have an advantage in a lot of ways over some of the groups that maybe, you know, maybe more global, but not as experienced in the in the emerging economies. So we have seen institutional appetite for uh, uh, country specific strategies or region specific strategies in Latin America, in Asia. To a lesser extent in Africa, but there is there is some interest there. But but again, I when I say there's some interest, uh, I would say your typical institutional portfolio may have you know up to a 10% allocation for that type of market exposure. It's not zero, but they're they're sort of mitigating that through portfolio construction as well. Um, but the local the local funds in those markets they've typically been much smaller obviously than the globally diversified funds but they have on the whole been successful at hitting their fundraising targets um and they but 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 they're typically raising you know 500 million dollar funds not you know multiple billion dollar funds when they're specific to those markets okay fantastic brent let, let's uh focus on these mega fund managers for a minute so as you talked about earlier, you know, they, um, when you raise a lot of money, the amount of opportunities you look at, you know, in terms of dollar sizes, it gets rarer. There's, there's less opportunities that, you know, are commensurate with the size of the equity check that you need to write at that level versus the type of returns you're trying to achieve. And not only that, you know, achieve that's consistent with historical returns, which is what got you to these, you know, supersized funds in the first place. You know, what's your view on capital deployment today through these larger funds? And, you know, are there enough opportunities out there for them to achieve these returns consistent with earlier generations of funds? Yeah, I think I, I, I think return compression um, is is kind of a natural uh, occurrence when you get more capital coming into a sector uh, that that said, uh, historically, those funds have 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 returned you know, private equity like returns. And so I, I think going forward, what we should expect from those funds are more infrastructure like returns, which, you know, on a net to LP basis for, for kind of a core plus to value add uh, approach, we think is more in the kind of 10 to 12% range, right? And so that return compression, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they can't achieve what they're advertising to us. It means that they may not achieve what they have historically. But historically, if you look at some of those, at some of those mega funds in their in their earlier vintages, they've really returned private equity-like returns. And so we think that, you know, sort of moderates to a more infrastructure-like return, which is which is more consistent with the risk profile that they're taking on. Um, you know the the funny thing is too um, for those mega for those mega funds and we have relationships with all of them we rarely see them run into each other on transactions I, I won't say it never happens it does on occasion but they they, they have been uh, uh, for the most part successful in pursuing opportunities independent of each other and so uh, we haven't seen a lot of overlap in their portfolios. Um, for, for for some of the for some of the the widely marketed larger deals, we have seen them multiple players in that space be be a part of the same auction. But I would say that's been you know that's been the exception. And so, uh, for the most part, we have seen them successful in ex continuing to execute their strategies. Uh, they've done that without bumping into each other a lot. I think they've they've focused more on some of the large asset corporate carve outs that are really not accessible to some of the smaller groups. Um, and, and I think they've also been successful at, at uh, as I mentioned, expanding the definition of what infrastructure is 
away from kind of the plain vanilla assets and and looking more toward other subsectors that behave in an infrastructure like manner but may not fit your typical your your traditional definition of infrastructure great let's talk about secondary vehicles you know again getting back to our point about alternative uh, asset costs has become very popular as of late what have you observed about what kind of assets are finding a home in these funds and why? And I'd like to get sort of your perspective on how to return stack up in secondary funds as opposed to primary funds. And again, this is to be very specific about infrastructure. We know that there's been secondary funds that are years old on the private equity side. So just wanted to get your take on things. Yeah, I, I think on a total return basis um, for a performing primary and a performing secondary uh, the, the the expectation should be that the secondary fund should perform better. And the reason for that is because the, the value proposition of a secondary fund is to get you closer to where the monetization events happen. And so um, if you have similar asset performance, but you're coming into it from a secondary perspective, uh, closer to when that asset's going to be monetized, you should have a higher IRR. Um, even even if and, and and even if you're not transacting at a discount, just by virtue of being closer to the cash flow return, you should you should expect to have a higher IRR in a secondary vehicle. Um, you know that that said, within infrastructure, the traditional LP secondary market in infrastructure is still is still reasonably thin, especially relative to private equity. Um, this this remains uh, even though it's it's grown exponentially in institutional portfolios and the number of players has increased on a kind of number of positions and, and scale of the, the capital opportunity and infrastructure secondaries relative to private equity, it's still a much, much smaller market. I have a feeling you're going to tell me next it's far more popular in Europe right now. Am I correct in saying that? No, no. I, I mean, I would say it's more popular in the sense that many of the... Uh, I shouldn't say many because there's not that many, but uh, most of the larger infrastructure secondary players are are have have been European based. So the the, the and 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 predominantly have European LPs. So um, you, you could say that that market is a little bit deeper in North America or in Europe versus North America. But they're still chasing the same secondary LP interests that some of the North America based funds are chasing as well. Um, the one area, John, that we've seen growing a lot on the infrastructure secondary side has been in the uh, single asset recapitalizations, the GP rollover vehicles, the continuation vehicles. Um, and this makes sense when, when you have an asset that uh, the GPs maybe owned it for four or five years. There's been some value creation over that time period. There's been some stabilization and de-risking of the asset base, but there's still runway left on the business plan for value creation. Um, there's there, there, there has been a good liquid market for uh, rollover transactions or GP led syndications of those single assets as they've, as they've progressed through their life cycle. But that's probably been the fastest growing area of the infrastructure secondary market. Great. Uh, on that note, uh, Brent, Jonathan, thanks for joining me on today's program. Really appreciate it. Right. Thanks, John. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listeners. And, we hope you'll tune in next time. Work out.